We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks. So school may be out this Friday due to another labor dispute. And you thought life would never return to normal after a two and a half year global pandemic? <laughs> Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I am completely exhausted. After listening to that, oh my God, I just want to get a pillow and put my head down on my desk and sleep, and if I don't, I'm going to cry. Oh my goodness. Uh, Good afternoon, 326 Hamilton Today. Starting a little later today because uh, we covered QP's uh, news conference in response to, I'm guessing, uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce's news conference uh, a little earlier on today. And um, it certainly looks, uh, when asked by a reporter, um, what happens after Friday, they're on strike. Uh, as of this Friday, she said, yes, we are on strike until, as of Friday, we are on strike until further notice until a deal is reached, uh, which is exactly why this legislation was introduced. The, in, the legislation was introduced to take the threat of a strike off the table during negotiations. But it appears there is absolutely no way to negotiate without holding a strike. That's basically what's happening here. And my goodness, the, the militant language and the he said, she said, back and forth and back and forth. All I know is parents are sick and tired of playing a collective bargaining game when they're not even in a union with their money and with their kids. The Ontario taxpayer is not a car plant. If you shut down, people just don't go to another car plant or another car dealer. This is a monopoly here. And the kids, every kid and every family all across the province is being held hostage because if the education union of the day does not make a deal with the government of the day, NDP, liberal or conservative, they threaten to go on strike till they get what they want. And every, for the most part, political party bends because they want to get reelected. Except now, because we've just spent two and a half years in a global pandemic, and we're having the same discussion that we were having two and a half years ago. So it just amazes me. It amazes me that anyone thinks anyone has the patience for any of this. The kids are being used. We're not in a union. It's an employee union. It's a labor union. When GM and Ford go on strike, they're not going on strike to build you a better car. They're going on strike for a better deal for their paying members. And that's exactly what's happening here. And they're going back to the old school that we've heard for 40 years. It's all about the kids. It's not. It's about a union fighting for a labor agreement for their paying members. And I don't think Ontarians or Canadians have the patience for it after two and a half years and a strike just before it. Taylor Swift continues soaring upward. Uh, This is her latest. The new album is called Midnight's. 
Not only is she beating all streaming records, she also has the top 10 number one songs on Billboard's Hot 100 charts. Our chart. To talk more about all of this, Eric Elper, publicist and music commentator, he is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Everything's great. Welcome to Taylor Swift Week. <laughs> oh, man. Now, I know we're in a different world now with streaming yeah. and digital uh, and technology and stuff, but I rem- I don't remember because uh, I was uh, barely <laughs> born, but I remember reading in my Billboard book that uh, I think it was 1964-ish, uh, the Beatles occupied the top five spots in on the Billboard Hot 100. The top five were all Beatles songs. I don't think that had been ever matched before. And then that was quite a feat. How do you compare it to this? Is this the same as that, but in a digital realm? Yeah, I, it, it's very much apples and oranges. It, it's kind of the same arguments that um, sports fans have when they want to compare, say, single-season home run records, even though every park <laughs> is completely different. Um, the fact that the Beatles had to release one song every four or five months just shows you what an astonishing car- record that was when they had the top five. Because that means that the top five songs for months and months and months and months and months would have been the Beatles cumulating in that August 4th, 1964 chart. With Taylor Swift, you have YouTube views, TikTok views, streaming downloads um, and record sales of vinyl and cassettes and CDs, which there are 20 different configurations of the album. Um, All of that means that total, she had the top 10 songs in America and Canada. Um, The Canadian billboard just came out last, uh, last hour said that she has for the first time in music history, the top 10 songs there too. So it basically says that she's dominated that week better than everybody else, but it's no less than a, an amazing feat to have though. So who would have come close to this? You know, is there another record like this or is this the first time something like this has happened to this extent? Yeah, Drake had nine last year, nine of the top 10 and 26 of the Billboard Hot 100 songs because there were 26 songs on his album. So when he released his last album, all 26 songs made the Billboard Hot 100. Um, And, you know, in the UK, they do something very different. They have a rule that... There are no more than three songs that's allowed per album in order to give the up-and-coming and newer artists a chance to get on the charts. Because if not, like let's say, let's say Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, and Drake and Adele all would have released their album in the same week. The entire top 100 would be dominated by just those five artists. So in the UK, in the UK, they happen to say, look, you know, we're we're not about celebrating success, but also about making sure that the next generation of talent gets their first taste of success Um, in America. They don't have that. It's a free for all. Uh, how has the album, the rule of the album, changed through this digital situation? Because, again, you're talking about singles and what the U.K. has done. Uh, again, at one time when you released an album, you'd release the single to try to get airplay to try to sell the rest of the album. This is basically releasing the whole album as 45s. to use an old and new analogy so how do you balance that because it's you know i mean obviously it's the popularity of streaming if people want to buy it they're going to buy it that's going to put them farther up the charts but is it odd as to what the uk is talking about that a whole album is released as singles that way 
Yeah, it's odd when you're a fan of somebody more than ever before, because if you're a fan of Taylor Swift, by next Thursday, you already know this album back to front. You've heard it over and over and over again. But commercial radio stations might still be on that first song that you've laid at the top of the segment, Antihero. It might be months until they get around to adding the second single from the album or the third single. So they're still, most traditional media, especially radio, are still in a very much traditional way of promotion, which is, you know, you release a new single in a video every month or every six to eight weeks. Um, But for the fan base, they're already sick of it because they've been listening to it for the last, you know, two months straight. Not necessarily sick of it, but um, you're not kind of playing to them. You're really playing to newer fans or people that are just getting into Taylor Swift for the first time. So it's a little bit of one foot in the traditional world and then one foot in the absolute free-for-all, let's load up our album with as many songs as possible. So what are the pros and cons of like a mass release like this? Because as you said, with 10 songs in the top 10, uh, you could be burned out on this whole thing in a couple of weeks or so. At what point does it become saturation? And then there's just too much product. Uh, I remember I even you, artists yeah. during the video days, you know, saying, no, no, I want my songs pulled off of MTV. They're getting saturated. How do you balance yeah. this? I remember when Phil Collins said that. Phil Collins begged MTV to stop playing his videos during the yeah. 1980s because he felt that it was going to ruin his career, that he was going to get too big, and that rarely happens. I think what artists have to understand is that if if it's going to be this kind of a world now where, yeah, you can release an album like people have done for the last 100 years, um, but... Um, you know, the chart isn't going to be your friend after, like, let's say... So Taylor Swift has 20 songs on this week. It'll be interesting to see how many songs she has next week because they Mm. may be dropping to three songs next week after those lesser known or lesser loved songs still make the, 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 the Hot 100. But what it does is it gets them really creative and it gets them thinking about different ways to promote the their album. Taylor Swift has been planning on this for two years. You know, she hasn't had a pop album in over two and a half years. Her last couple of releases were more folk roots in evermore um uh and with this one on midnight um on thursday night at midnight the 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 day before this album came out she released bejeweled and question two songs from the latest album on her web store for 69 cents so that actually she kind of leaked her own music and Mm. sold it to the hardcore fans that went to the website so that's a real creative process for her and her team to think about. It's not just about dropping an album and here's 20 songs. It's like, well, what can we do with each of the songs to get the fans excited? Is there pressure on an artist to do, to, to create more content, more product because it's released so quickly and a flavor of the day passes so quickly. All the time. Um, there was a study that was done out of the UK again that had something like in the neighborhood of 79% of all artists um, that do music either part-time or full-time have suffered from some form of of depression or suicidal thoughts or have made so little money that they're well above the poverty line and all three kind of intertwine towards one another mostly because of the sheer pressure that not only are they putting on themselves but the record labels the management the booking agent and the fans to continue to have to post on social media mm. to come up with videos to come up with content usually in the 70s and 80s when an album kind of finished doing what it did the artist would go take a well-rested yeah. vacation in the yeah. bahamas 
and then they yeah. would come back a year later for an album and then go out on tour yeah. uh, you know for a year this isn't the case anymore there's no more downtime in fact when you're in between albums that's when you have to start ramping up the social media to make people not forget who you are Wow. Eric Elber with his publicist and music commentator, Taylor Swift, uh, top five, sorry, 10 positions on Billboard's Hot 100 streaming off the charts. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great week. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter around uh, inflation and obviously just the pinch that everybody is feeling uh, as we head into uh, this holiday season. And you might remember that during the uh, global pandemic, people actually started putting out decorations early and leaving them up longer. And stores even got into that with, uh, you know, jumping on board. Whereas, you know, before the pandemic, we used to say, all right, enough, wait till the Halloween's over the U.S. Thanksgiving before we start, you know, getting into the the rest of it. Uh, but people kind of needed um, some sort of lift during the last two and a half years, so things were starting early. Uh, what are the concerns? when we have the inflation that we have and also the shortage of labor and obviously retail in great need of that, especially during the holiday season. Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during and after COVID-19 and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. So obviously, Bruce, we've heard staffing issues, uh, unemployment rates uh, traditionally low. How does this reflect? Uh, how does this affect retail? Uh, what are their staffing concerns heading into a holiday season? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's going to be a really tough uh, retail season for a number of uh, retailers because, to your point early in your introduction, you know, there's just a number of headwinds that consumers are facing: everything from inflation and potential recession, you know, loss of stock market, uh, real estate, you know, you name it, right? Uh, Geopolitical issues. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And consumers are going to try to spend less uh, where possible uh, across the board. You know, obviously it varies depending on whether you're well-heeled or if you're sort of uh, living and watching your pennies. But definitely it's going to be a really tough season. And labor is an issue for retailers. There isn't enough people to stock the stores. And that's going to be an issue as it relates to everything from customer service to you know, shopkeep in the store, inventory keep up and things like that. What about, uh, you talk about stock, what about supply chain issues, uh, things uh, that are uh, in short supply? Is that, will that be a concern this season? No, it won't really be a big concern this season as much as previous years. This time last year, we talked a lot about how we were out of stock and how people were having a hard time finding things. This year, it's a little bit of the opposite. Inventory is actually higher than last year and in, in, in several years with some retailers. And uh, if anything, they're going to be a little more aggressive on the discounts to try to move it through. Sure, there's going to be items that run out. There's always hot items that run out. But, you know, overall, there's more inventory out there than previously. Uh, that's interesting. How does that affect pricing and sales? So are you saying there might be bargoons to be had out there? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying is I expect it to be a pretty aggressive Black Friday, so to speak. And we knowing that Black Friday now is really, you know, sort of the month of November versus just a holiday and same with Cyber Monday. But I expect to see some pretty decent deals uh, because, you know, Amazon came out with a bit of a sneak peek a couple weeks ago and supposedly it was a little lukewarm. So I think retailers are going to learn from that, sharpen their prices and really come out with some really decent discounts. Uh, what about shopping early versus shopping later? Is there any tips there? Well, a lot of consumers are looking to shop early if the price is right. You know, they're not going to buy at regular price early, but if they see a really wicked sale early on, they're going to strike and they're going to take it early 
because they want to make sure they capture those discounts. So they can't afford to wait till you know the end of December, mid December, and pay regular price for anything. Everything has to be a deal this year to put under the tree. Uh, most of the time, we see this stuff kick off after the U.S. Thanksgiving. Uh, during the pandemic, things started a little earlier. Even people decorating their homes earlier just to get a bit of a lift. How has the post-pandemic, or what is the post-pandemic uh, era like? Will there will will things be earlier? Will they jump on it right away? What are your thoughts on how they compare to seasons in in uh, previously? Yeah, I think it's going to be earlier this year. You're already starting to see greater displays at some retailers that are early. Certainly some people are a little nervous about sort of doing too much before uh, November 11th, Remembrance Day, out of respect for our fallen soldiers. But uh, companies will quietly, you know, try to get out there earlier, try to at least become top of mind for consumers. And as I mentioned, you know, it's really become sort of the month of November now that's promotional versus just Black Friday. So it's going to happen earlier this year. So, Bruce, I wanted to ask you about hospitality. Uh, we're seeing uh, situations locally where some restaurants uh, are offering their staff uh, health and dental benefits as a way to uh, ease the, the labor shortage and, and stop the turnover. Uh, how much are we seeing that in hospitality and in retail? Yeah, you're seeing some of that in select spots. There's a lot of people who sort of, um, a lot of retailers and, and shops, uh, restaurants that you know, don't see that as a potential. They just don't have the margins to offer those type of uh, benefits. But, you know, some folks have just had such a hard time getting people that they're willing to really, you know, up the ante in terms of compensation for for workers. And uh, one thing that's going to help them a lot is Canada has brought in a record number of uh, temporary foreign workers um, from other countries. And these people are actually doing a lot of work in the food service business now where we used to sort of use them maybe more in the farming and agriculture sectors. That's mm-hmm. still a big area, but you're starting to see that creep into other sectors as well. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, what the holiday season will look like from a retail standpoint. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, boy, things coming ahead between uh, QP and the Ontario government. Uh, dueling news conferences today uh, between the education minister and the head of uh, QP. Where are we now? Yes, you'll need a program. And Colin DeMello to explain it for us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, from Global News and with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you for having me on this another busy day at Queen's Park. Man, I'm watching you guys in the, uh, in you know, taking the news conference and, and such. And, uh, man, it, I don't know how you keep up with all of this stuff. So give us the best update you can. From what we understand, uh, it looks like this protest, this strike is a go for Friday. And we understand that uh, Laura Walton said that this would be the get- beginning of a strike. Uh, unless a deal is reached. Can you can you help us out with this? Yeah, and so, I mean, to caution this, this is all very fluid. Anything can change at any moment, as we've been seeing over the last number of days. But if we've seen this um, entire affair escalate, um, it is escalating even more. So uh, today, the education minister came out and said, listen, we are not going to negotiate with CUPE. We are not going to take our legislation off the table unless CUPE withdraws its threat to go on strike. CUPE later came out and said, we are not taking our strike threat off the table. They are in a legal strike position, which is true, as of November the 3rd. So they could go on strike really tomorrow if they wanted to, and it would be legal. 
Um, but they also said that once they go on strike, their intent is to stay on strike for the foreseeable future until a deal has been reached. Now, that means a lot of chaos for school boards, for parents, for everyone in the education sector, because nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. Will this actually occur? Here are the things that need to happen. Um, currently, there is a negotiate, uh, negotiations actively happening between uh, the government and QP with the help of a mediator. QP came out with a new contract yesterday. They were originally asking for 11% per member per year for four years. Now they're asking for a 6% increase per year for a four-year contract. The um, Ford government, the max they're willing to go to right now is two and a half percent. And they already said that that's their final offer. So that's where the negotiations stand right now. Um, what we're waiting to see is if somebody moves, somebody buckles or somebody blinks. That really is what's going to bring an end to all of this. But as of right now, this is, you know, the... <laughs> The highest peak you could possibly imagine, we are there, and it could go even higher. So you said this earlier, and excuse me for asking this again, I just want to clarify. So are they actually, are there people negotiating this right now? Is this actually being worked on right now? They are going through a mediator, and a mediator is kind of going from one room to the next, uh, right. back and forth. He's a very experienced mediator when it comes to education union negotiations, and he's the one really talking to the two sides to see if they can come to some kind of an arrangement. So um, uh, when asked about the parents, Laura Walton said, well, that's what the five-day uh, strike notice is about. It's giving people time, although they still don't know. I guess it's to prepare for because you don't know if things could obviously, you know, obviously go right and it wouldn't need to happen. Uh, is that what the five days is all about, is to allow parents time to try to make these plans? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are talking about students and parents who, uh, you know, would would for younger kids need childcare, school boards that would need to kind of prepare what exactly they're going to do. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, you know, factors that everyone needs to consider, which is why that five day notice is, is typically given uh, before before the strike uh, deadline is actually uh, passed. And so right now, so as of November 3rd, they're in a legal strike position, but they gave five days notice to go on strike November 4th. So right now, the union says November 4th, they're going on strike. They say that they're not going to be picketing schools. They're actually going to be picketing MPP offices. So for other members, for the Elementary Teachers Federation or for the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, you know, they're saying that their members will be on the job as per usual if the school, of course, is open. But they won't even have to cross a picket line because QP isn't actually planning to picket any schools. Um, so schools could technically open if the school board allows it if they see that they can actually there's a viable way to open uh, but at the end of the day um, you know teachers will be there but the support staff won't so clerical workers early childhood educators which means some you know junior kindergarten or kindergarten classes might be down to one uh, educator um, and uh, librarians and the custodians as well so the classrooms won't be clean or disinfected in, during this time of covid now, as you mentioned, Colin, some school boards have already mentioned if this goes through, if the strike happens, that they can operate, that they will close down. Now that they've announced that this is the start of an ongoing strike, if a resolution isn't found between now and then, will that change school boards, other school boards' opinions, do you think? And, you know, if this is going to be uh, uh, the beginning of a strike, then, then many will just not open on Friday. Any talk about other boards jumping on board? 
Yeah, I can only imagine the flurry of activity that's happening with schoolboys right now. They must be doing yeah. a lot of planning to, to try to figure out exactly what happens. Um, and, and they may have to take this day by day, right? We don't know what's going to happen on Monday. We don't know what's going to happen on Friday. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There are a lot of moving parts here. And the school boards will most likely take it day by day. One of the underlying factors we all have to understand is that if if this legislation using the notwithstanding clause passes uh, tomorrow and uh, QP members would be in an illegal strike position on Friday, then for every day that they go on strike, the individual QP member would face a $4,000 fine. I, I, I don't know about you. I couldn't afford $4,000 yeah. a day. I don't think a lot of QP members who earn an average of thirty-eight dollars to $39,000 a year would be able to afford a uh, $4,000 strike. It's 10% of their salary. And so I think that's what the government is banking on uh, to prevent them from going on strike. So the union leadership might say, we're walking off the job. But individuals might be thinking twice, saying, do I really want to give up $4,000? Probably not. So that's Colin a wild De- card in this as well. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. You can watch Global News for more on all of this tonight. Colin, thanks so much for the debriefing. Uh, good work, and uh, let us know when things changes. Uh, when things change. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Send coffee to Queen's Park. Uh, I'm getting, you know, more notes about, uh, and, and you know what? Everybody deserves a raise. Everybody deserves uh, whatever they need to get through this post-COVID-19 uh, a period in life. But what people are talking about when they're talking about collective bargaining rights, uh, collective bargaining rights work great when it's General Motors or Ford or any other company, because when the workers go on strike for better pay, better conditions, as they're totally entitled to do, it affects the people at General Motors or Ford or wherever. And if you're trying to buy a car and you don't get it, you just go to another store, another dealer, another whatever. And, you know, the union can demand as much as they can demand or as much as the company can pay. And we saw we saw positions alter when the automotive industry went through tough times and they just didn't have the money. There were some were going bankrupt. But instead of General Motors, this is the taxpayer. So every time in the last 50 years, this is ongoing with some sort of education strike, they show up to the taxpayer's door and they ask for more money. And again, I'm not debating whether the education workers should get more money. Of course they should. But how can you have collective bargaining? This isn't my union. I don't belong to it. Yet I'm paying for it. And my kids are being held hostage. If I go and have a dispute with my boss over my wage, it doesn't affect you in any way. You may not hear me on the air, but you'll hear somebody else. You've got options. We have none. And again, whatever the collective bargaining right is or not, Canadians, Ontarians have had enough of this. They've had enough of being held hostage for somebody else's labor contract. And General Motors doesn't go on strike to build you a better car. They go on strike to get a better deal for their paying members. It's the same here. So, again, totally understand uh, collective bargaining and how it all works. Get it. But you're holding a third party hostage here. And that's the people who are actually paying. Not the government. Us. We're paying. But both our kids and our tax dollars. And we have no say except the government we elect of the day, whether it's NDP, whether it's liberal, or whether it's conservative. I'm 60 years old. I went through this as a high school student, 
and my kids have gone through it. Parents are tired of this. Whatever the system is, they're tired of being held hostage when it's not their union, it's not their company, it's someone else's, yet our kids and our tax dollars are paying for this. It's going to be fascinating to see how this turns out. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Henry, I know we're supposed to talk about the Emergencies Act, but your thought on where we are and how we settle this. I understand uh, collective bargaining. I understand there's a right and a process here. But there's people that are involved that have absolutely nothing to do with it that are being victimized uh, in, in, in a very, very large proportion. What can we do? How can we move this forward? Well, I think right now the present situation we can't we can't really because uh, I mean essentially the government has decided how, what it's going to do and it's and it's going to do it. It has the majority and it's going to do it. And I think essentially what will happen we'll have a protest on Friday, uh, but by the, by passing the legislation that the government has, they can start putting uh, fines on uh, unions that are supporting this and quite and that is usually a very effective way of ending the protests because the, the unions essentially don't want all their money taken by the government in, in terms of fines. So that's what I think is going to happen. Uh, I, I know that there's a legal right to do what they are doing, and I, I, I support their ability to collective bargain and, and try to get the best deal for their members as they possibly can. How do we take this out of the public's hands? Because again, if it's a private company and they go on strike and they're having, uh, and they're deadlocked, the whole country, the whole province doesn't suffer. The customers suffer. The shareholders suffer. It's 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 an attack on the company. Whereas here, I understand their fight with the government of the day, but it's attacking all of the rest of us who are actually paying for it. Is there a better way to do this? Uh, is the answer here essential service? What, what's the answer? Because this has been going on for 50 years, Henry, pretty yeah, much every other year. Well, I, I've been on both sides of a negotiating table for uh, wages, and I and I do think there is a better way, but uh, hasn't it's not normally considered either by the unions or by the government. And the way I that I went through it is essentially is we would have a uh, a time when uh, we would negotiate, at a, you would hit a certain de- a date that you all agreed on, and to say if we don't have a deal at that point. We then select three uh, arbitrators to evaluate our two positions, and then pick the one they think is the, uh, you know, the most reasonable, which is usually the most moderate. And uh, yeah, so I've been involved in those situations and never, never had to go on strike because basically we, that process was there. And and I think it's a very good process, uh, but generally the unions don't want it. Most unions don't want it, and uh, governments generally don't want it. But it, keeps, um, but it keeps, but it keeps everybody working. That's that's the great thing, and it, and it, and the most reasonable party on both sides is the one who's likely to win. Should public service unions be allowed under this model without some sort of contingency plan, backup plan that you're speaking of? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, that the what there? I mean, the contingency plan essentially is the uh, basically uh, the notwithstanding uh, clause, you know clause that the province has at least for so they they can do that i mean it's uh it's very blunt and it means that the government ultimately with that type of mechanism the government always wins uh if as long as it can maintain you know uh 
public uh, public approval for doing that. And oftentimes, and I think you're right, most people would probably say, you know, I don't like, you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't close down the schools for this. Uh, now, I think there is this important group that disagrees, and, and, and we see a lot of them now on television who are being interviewed, and they're ordinary parents who are actually have their kids in the school. I mean, they've got real skin in the game because their kids are in the school, and they tend to back the teachers because they, you know, you know, they don't want the teachers being, uh, you know, going on strike or protesting or that, all that sort of thing. And, of course, they know the teachers, and they, you know, generally I think uh, – the teachers and the people they know, they're pretty happy with them. And, you know, so they, 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 that's what they want. But I think, I, think, I think you're probably right. In general, the public is likely to say, no, we don't want any, we don't want any strikes like that. Uh, the, uh, we only got a few seconds left. The Prime Minister, uh, I can't believe I'm just watching clips of question period in the House of Commons. They're debating Doug Ford's use of the notwithstanding clause, right. calling it overreach and wrong. Right, right. This seems a little rich when we're in the middle of a six-week inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. Isn't this a little odd? Well, yeah. I mean, they're on the other side of that, although, I mean, obviously they weren't directly affecting in the same way uh, uh you know people's people's uh, uh compensation but you can argue is like some of the protesters said you know I'm, a, I'm a, i own a truck company or i have a truck company i have to go back and forth between the u.s and canada and uh, some of my drivers uh, don't want to get the vaccine so then if they don't go pick up a, a load of cabbages in, in down the u.s and bring them up here i'm, I'm losing money so it's something. Yeah, it's it's something like it, and it is interesting that we have we have the two. The you know the the federal government sort of looks like it's on two different sides here. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, trying to make sense of the political world. Henry, as always, thank you for your time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Another. Uh, some more great information. There's an economic statement coming out tomorrow. Bet you're excited about that. Federal government going to release this tomorrow. What do small businesses want to see from the fall economic statement tomorrow? Let's bring in Corinne Pullman, Senior VP, National Affairs, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with us now. Corinne, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. I'm good. I hope you're well, too. So far, so good. Uh, any sort of hints, before we get to what you're actually looking for, any hints uh, as what you may see tomorrow? Any idea? Any any sort of prediction? Um, hopefully, <laughs> you know, there's always what you want to see and what will like you'll likely see. Of course, the economic statement is usually, uh, first and foremost, just an overview of where the government is at from the fiscal position. So uh, how the deficit is doing and all those kinds of things. And I think we already know that the deficit, while still large, is smaller than it had been predicted to be at this time of year. Um, however, you know, we're also hearing that there may be a bit more of a, you know, a mini budget too, in that they may announce a few things tomorrow as well. Um, what those things might be, some of it could be repetitive of things that have already been announced, um, but maybe there'll be a couple surprises, who knows. Okay, so what is small business looking for? We certainly know what's uh, been happening over the last two and a half years and the crunch they've been feeling. Uh, what are they looking for from this economic statement? Well, I think, you know, the fact is that many of them are still uh, struggling with debt. Um, with last time we checked, which was just um, earlier this fall, there were, the average debt was still about $144,000 uh, per small business just from the pandemic alone. 
And, the, you know, over half of them are still not quite back to where they were pre-pandemic. And, of course, with all these costs rising and inflation and supply chain challenges, uh, it's, it's not been as smooth or as simple for many of them as it could be. So we're really asking governments not to make things worse, um, which means, you know, do everything you can not to increase taxes. We already know that they're likely going to be increasing things like employment insurance and CPP. Uh, come January, which is a hit on everybody's paycheck, uh, both and employers also pay a big part of those uh, uh, same fees as well. So we're worried about what that's going to mean for a lot of small companies and asking them to either not do it, maybe put it on hold until we get inflation a bit more under control, uh, increasing those particular uh, taxes. Or even looking at maybe something like a small business job credit, where they allow small businesses a bit of a break on things like EI because they are particularly sensitive to payroll taxes, uh, more so than larger companies are. So that would be one area for sure. We're also looking at things like um, the Canada Emergency Business Account Loan. That is uh, has to get repaid by the end of next year in order to get the forgivable portion. That was that loan of $40,000 um, that was then later increased to 60000 of which a portion can be forgivable if it's paid back by the end of next year. Um, we want to see potentially some movement on that, for example, maybe giving businesses another year to pay it back, maybe up to 2024, maybe increasing the forgivable portion for those particularly hard-hit businesses. And we also know there's a chunk of businesses out there who've been getting letters um, saying that they are now ineligible for that loan, but they feel that they are, and giving them an opportunity to still prove that, that this is something um, that they should be able to keep. Um, those businesses will be asked to pay back the full loan and won't be getting anything. Um, so we're looking for a little bit of reprieve there as well. And finally, we're hoping there'll be something on credit cards. That's a big fee mm. for a lot of small companies, right? And that one, um, they've been promising for a couple of years now that they're going to do something to lower merchant fees for small businesses, but we've seen nothing so far. So hopefully t- tomorrow we'll hear something more on that. What about the news not too long ago about being able to pass that on to customers? And as long as you're uh, open about that, does, how does how does small business feel about that? Independent business. Well, I think that you know it's something that um, some businesses may look at very seriously, only because the cost has grown. Obviously, with the pandemic, more and more people have to use credit cards to pay or are using credit cards to pay. And I think what a lot of consumers don't realize is that those credit cards come with a hefty cost for a small business. And it's becoming a bigger and bigger proportion of their costs. And with everything else, they have to figure out ways to cut costs. And if they can recoup some of that from their customers, some of them may opt to do that. I think most will not um, because they don't want to obviously anger their customers. They want to do whatever they can. They want to stay competitive. But if you have no other choice uh, because you're spending you know, a lot of money every month just to accept a credit card, some may now choose because they have that option to pass it along to their customers. Um, uh, we uh, over and above this economic statement that comes out tomorrow, uh, it's yeah. still been forecast that there's headwinds ahead, that the times are going to get tough. Uh, the government's sort of changing its language, uh, less sunny ways, more tough times ahead. How does that affect small business, uh, not only with the, the economic statement, but knowing that this season's going to be tough for them, especially heading into what is usually their busiest? Yeah, it's uh, definitely having an impact. We're seeing the same, um, less optimism, uh, and some of the lowest optimism we've actually seen since uh, the pandemic days uh, among our members right now, worried about what does this mean from a customer perspective? Are people still going to come into their stores, still going to purchase from them? So it's definitely, I think, um, 
it's always tough when the, we start getting this messaging because it kind of perpetuates a little bit more what's going to come, right? Um, mm. So, you know, hopefully we can continue to encourage folks to think about those small businesses when they're going going to do the shopping, which they may also have to cut back on, and that's understandable because everyone's a bit more nervous about where things are going to go. And they're not immune to that, small businesses. So, of course, they have to do what they can to keep their costs um, in control as well. Corinne Pullman with us, Senior VP of National Affairs for Canadian Federation of Independent Business, what they're hoping for and what they're hoping to see in tomorrow's fall economic statement from the federal government. Corinne, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked a lot over, uh, well, we're not talking about a pandemic or everything else, uh, inflation and such, uh, Twitter and Elon Musk. And I remember, and we've talked a lot of experts about this, that Twitter really wasn't that valuable prior to uh uh, Donald Trump sort of taking it over. And now Elon Musk has uh, jumped on and, and uh, taken over this. But it, it really seems it's more about chatter than it does the actual platform. To talk more about all of this, is it the platform? Is it the person? Carmi Levy is with us, technology analyst and journalist, and with us now. Carmi, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Wonderful to be here with you. So I've seen you chat about this on various other news outlets and such. And I remember, and like, when this first started, it's, oh my goodness, Elon Musk is buying Twitter, blah, 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 and all these concerns and all whatever. Uh, will he do what he says, or is this chatter all about keeping him in the news? Is this about publicity for a platform that's really not doing that well, or is it about a great platform that we should all be on? Elon Musk says a lot of things that he wants us to believe, but then he ultimately doesn't deliver or he delivers late or it's really different from what he originally promised. I just, you know, trying to keep up with his Twitter feed, even just today, it's just been this endless flow of silliness. And and I keep thinking this isn't a, a guy who's seriously focused on turning Twitter around and fixing what is admittedly a broken social media platform and turning it into something closer to what it was originally supposed to be. Um, this is a guy who loves attention. I mean, he always has to a certain degree. He has delivered at his other companies, at SpaceX, for example, Tesla. There's no denying what he's accomplished. The man is uh, an historic generational disruptor of industries. But I think in this case, uh, he's just enjoying having access to this very large megaphone and he wants us all to pay attention. And as much as I wish that it were about the platform, that it were about making a better Twitter, everything I've seen so far, frankly, is what I feared I would see when he did take over is that, um, you know, we've given the kid access to the to you know the, the driver's seat, to the steering wheel and the uh, accelerator pedal. And he's figuring it out now and he's playing with it and he just wants us all to watch while he plays. And that's not a good place for a company like Twitter to be. When does the shine go off this pumpkin? When do we start saying, well, nothing's different. Who cares? It's not going to take very long. Uh, I and, and I think it's already starting to dawn on Mr. Musk that that shiny bauble that he bought isn't going to be shiny for very long. I think he's already facing some very significant financial pressure. We seem to think that because he's the world's richest man that he could just write a, write a check and that's the end of that. But no, um, in fact, he didn't just write a check. He had to arrange some incredibly complex financing from some very strange sources like 
Saudi Arabian princes and and venture capital firms and investor and and uh, and, uh, and and investment firms in Silicon Valley who literally had to cobble together uh, a Jenga tower worthy you know worth of hmm. financial um, finan- financial arrangements uh, to make this happen. His Tesla stock, thirteen percent of, of his Tesla stock, in fact, is devoted to the Twitter deal, which of course means that as Tesla stock continues to drop because Tesla investors are worried about the influence of Twitter on Tesla, that Mr. Musk's own worth continues to drop as well. So, you know, I think he's in a he's in a world of financial hurt. And as the realities of I got to make money off of this really dawn on him, um, it is going to lose its appeal fairly quickly. And he's going to get really serious really fast. The layoffs we know uh, are coming fast and furious. We know those plans are being drawn up. Uh, he's already locked off the, the senior leadership level of the company, as everyone expected. Um, so it's it's going to go from a funny lark that he thought would be cool to have to something that's going to be very deadly serious for very many thousands of people, uh, not least of which is Mr. Musk himself, because his very financial future hangs in the balance. Uh, there was lots of chatter when he, there was chatter, uh, talk of him taking over, that all these people that have been banned, whether it's Kanye or Trump, were all going to get back on. Now that he owns it, he's kind of backed off all that stuff. So uh, what now? Yeah, I mean, he certainly has. He said a lot of really hyperbolic things in the in the run-up to the deal closing last week. And um, I think part of that was attention. Part of that was just Elon Musk being Elon Musk. That's just the way he operates. But when it dawned on him that, oh, my goodness, advertisers are going to back away. Uh, General Motors, for example, paused its advertising um, pending further review. One of the largest uh, companies that the agency that places most of the ads on Twitter told all of its companies, its clients, uh, to uh, put their money elsewhere. So, um, I, you know, so he's spoken to advertisers, sent out an open letter, pulling back from the precipice, being a little more conciliatory, promising that Twitter wouldn't become a hellscape. Um, you know, some of the more, you know, his promises to bring back all the folks that he had banned. I think he's having second thoughts about that as well. But of course, now he's between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he has to do the responsible thing. Otherwise, he loses his very sources of revenue that are keeping the lights on. But on the other hand, if he doesn't come through, uh, then those on the right who have been cheering, you know, oh, we're going to bring Alex Jones back. Um, if they're not satisfied, there's going to be rumbling from them as well. So he's not going to please everyone. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm doubtful that he's going to be able to reach a balance where he'll be able to please anyone. I know he's a genius, but how does he have time for all this? Like SpaceX, Tesla, pretty impressive, even just with one of those, let alone with both. How does he have time for all of this? I don't think he does. And I know for years there has been concern over whether he is, in fact, putting you know enough time into each one of them. Uh, when, for example, SpaceX was about to launch its first demo mission with humans on board, uh, there was concern that he was being distracted by production problems at Tesla. And, you know, so and he, you know, assured everyone I'm able to spend this amount of time on this company and this many days and hours there. And I have teams that handle it. And just because I'm not tweeting about it doesn't mean that I'm not paying attention to it. But at some point, you're spread too thin. I mean, you know, you know, I've, I've got a full time job and a number of part time gigs, and I find that hard to manage. And, and I'm not head of, you know, some of the biggest and most successful companies on, on planet Earth. So I think he does have an attention problem. Uh, and I think that is a concern, especially for a company like Twitter, which probably needs a lot more handholding than his other holdings. Uh, and so what of SpaceX? What of Tesla? What happens if they hit a crisis? You know, the economy slows down and suddenly they need a little bit more, you know, capital C CEO and he's not there to provide it. 
that's a real concern, not just for stakeholders and shareholders, for the publicly traded ones, uh, but for folks who work there and for customers of them who, frankly, deserve a CEO who's 100% focused. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about the uh, chaotic life of Elon Musk. Carmi, as always, thanks for your time. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking about this a little earlier on in the week, uh, and CISA is now um, again showing concerns over uh, Chinese interference and the Chinese, uh, the sorry, the uh, Chinese Communist Party's interference here in Canada. We were talking about uh, police stations uh, that are being investigated by the RCMP that have apparently been set up here. Uh, the Chinese say to make sure that Chinese Canadians can get their driver's license for back home uh but instead we're finding out that it's used to uh harass people that are canadians that are here and also uh more concern from isis or sorry CSIS, uh that uh the chinese communist party is interfering in uh elections and policy here in canada to talk more about all of this elliot tepper emeritus professor political science carleton university he's here now elliot thank you for the time I hope you're well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. So once again, we have CSIS, uh talking to politicians and saying, hey, you got to look at this, and this is certainly not the first time. Uh, considering the two Michaels and, you know, um, COVID, the bad vaccine deal, whatever, pick your, your crisis with China, what is it going to take before we start paying attention to the information that's being given to us by our own spy agencies? The fact that this was testimony in Parliament... Uh, and not, uh, it's before a, a special uh, standing committee on on procedures and things, but we also have a separate Canada-China relations committee. So can, Parliament has responded by setting up special uh, activities to focus on that relationship. But what will it take to change our policies? Uh, that is uh, out of my, beyond my pay scale. What does become clearer and clearer is that China is not the cooperative, friendly, rising power that we must deal with because, after all, they are the number one, number two, number three economy in the world or trading partner in the world, and we, they're here. We have to deal with them. The nature of this regime is increasingly clear, and we've seen it once again in the alarm raised by CSIS that there is behavior not I think the way they put it, and it, it, it was a, they called it an influence campaign. The important part here is it's a campaign of influence, uh, which goes beyond the normal behavior of states. We, Scott, we, we go around the world, particularly in the U.S., when we have problems with, you know, the new NAFTA and all that. We try to influence public opinion to be favorable to us. That's a normal standard operating pr- procedure. It's when it gets into the harassment and intimidation and actual espionage aspects that it crosses the line into illegal behavior. The, um, the nature of that, uh, that uh, emerged Communist Party, we've, we've seen them differently before Xi Jinping came to power and now more clearly afterwards. Uh, as you just mentioned, and we've talked about before, uh, the president now there for life. Does that change Canada's position? Does it change things? I think it uh, certainly has in terms of public opinion. We've seen the 
we have attitude surveys through the Pew Foundation, and they, they, it, the whole world basically uh, around the world has now gone from being quite favorable to China to being quite unfavorable to China. The question now is the actions that are going to follow from this. The alarm has been raised by CSIS. We should also say that this is joining our major partners, the Five Eye Partners, uh, the intelligence sharing community mm -hmm. in Canada is a privileged member. There's only five members of that uh, have been raising this as an issue. I'd just like to quote from what the FBI has recently said about exactly what we're talking about. And I'm quoting here, the counterintelligence and economic espionage efforts, counterintelligence and economic espionage efforts emanating from the government of China, the Chinese Communist Party are a grave threat to the economic well-being and democratic values of the United States. And to come to your question, confronting this threat is the FBI's top counterintelligence priority. Hmm. I don't know if it is the co top counterintelligence priority for us, but certainly when we have our partners uh, raising these concerns, as is CSIS, uh, it's bound to raise the, um, the whole priority, I believe, to any government of Canada. What? Who is the Chinese Communist Party targeting here? Who are they trying to influence here? And um, why don't Chinese Canadians who are being affected speak up? Why are more Chinese Canadians here not defending why they came to this country for a better start and, and calling out the homeland? Yes, the, uh, the question of who's being targeted is it's a very broad range. We have to, the, the report to which you're referring, CSIS, has said that, you know, there, it's, a target of individuals uh, for harassment purposes, but also uh, government agencies, also the private sector. I think we should spend a, a bit of time reminding ourselves that Huawei is a factor inside Canada as well. The um, Huawei incident regarding Nortel is receding in our memory. In fact, we never got it documented sufficiently. But the fact that Canada no longer has a champion in the 5G network uh, competition, and that only Huawei, Huawei is there with ZTE, is due allegedly and with a lot of evidence to the fact that Chinese espionage entered inside the Nortel, <laughs> inside Nortel when it had 70% of the world's internet traffic on its equipment yeah. and then systematically spied on it, gutted it, then underbid Nortel by 40%, as it did for a UK company elsewhere, in terms of gaining the contracts necessary to gain dominance of management of the internet. Uh, therefore, we now have people to come back again to the question you're asking, who's being targeted? The Hong Kong activist said, we can't trust any internet traffic that goes through Huawei, and Huawei controls the internet traffic globally, and also Uyghur activists in Canada say they are concerned. The question of intimidation of Chinese uh, Canadians or people of, of Chinese descent who uh, live in Canada and they're Canadian, they are victims of this. And uh, expecting them to, um, to carry the can for what should be a counterintelligence operation by our authorities and by our parliament, I think is a bit unfair. Are we being politically correct here? Let's cut to the chase. Um, you, you know, I've talked to various uh, uh, Chinese officials on both sides of this discussion, and, and some have even said it's racism. 
So how do you separate the security issues and the reality and the facts? Because Canadians are sensitive to this as opposed to, well, it's all about racism. You don't like, you know, you don't like China. You don't like the Chinese people. How do you get, how do you avoid that argument? How do you keep this factual? I've raised this uh, among colleagues and peers of mine in numerous seminars and, uh, well, you know, behind the scenes and in lunches. I'm very, very concerned about what you are now raising uh, correctly is that uh, when dealing with China, we cross the line into raising, you know, the yellow scare and all of that. And I think that should be part of our response when we become increasingly aware of how the uh, Communist Party of China is behaving around the world and specifically in Canada. We have to be self-aware as part of our response that the people in front of us, uh, whoever they may be, are Canadians. And uh, one estimate was, well, you know, you have to worry about the students. An estimate came, there's less than 1% of students who possibly might be involved, Chinese, these are students Mm. coming from China to study in Canada and elsewhere. Less than 1% of those possibly might be involved in the kind of espionage activities we're talking about. Uh, We have to realize that we are facing, in my case at Carleton University, and every professor has this, we have students in front of us, and that's what they are. They're students who came to learn. Wow, that must be uh, difficult. Elliot Tepper with us, Emer- uh, uh, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, ceases concern over Chinese interference here in Canada. Elliot, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Looking for your last word is Will Weber. You can fax us. Or fax us. You can text us. You can call us. You can send us a note. No fax machine. I think that's. Uh... No, it's been unplugged. All right. Uh, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm tied up on my fax machine. What year are you living in? Did your pager go off? <laughs> I've got like so many pieces of paper in front of me, man. I'm just, did my pager go off? Yes, it did. What the heck's with that? Uh, so um, uh, we've been talking about the Kiwi thing all uh, all day. And frankly, you know, I'm sure all the listeners are, are annoyed with it because I'm tired of talking about it. Um, but I found it fascinating when the NDP all got up and left. Oh, no, they were kicked out. They were kicked out of... Uh, of uh, the legislature today and the reason is uh, mpp tabins said and here's the quote uh the government is quote lying about the damage uh they are doing to the education system lying about the damage they are doing to the education system which to me makes absolutely no sense at all i don't know what point uh he was trying to make there um yes we're purposely damaging the education system that's what you're going to hear a political party say i'm not sure but because he used the word lying you can't say that you can't accuse somebody of lying uh you know they asked him to withdraw it he wouldn't they asked him again nope so the parade starts and then of course the real show begins after they all get outside and start chattering uh, to the media. I'm wondering, uh, is this really about solving the issue or is this grandstanding for a partner that's trying desperately to, to be a part of all of this and, and to have some sort of impact considering where they are in the polls? Scott, we talked about this on my show last night and, uh, the problem I have with any party taking a hard issue, uh, about the education workers as their best friend 
is that if you go back to the days of Bill Davis in the 70s, there has not been a government, no matter what political stripe, that has been able to get along with the education unions. So there's not like the NDP can say, oh, we're always there. We've always been on their side. They, The education unions didn't like Bob Ray one bit when Ray Days came in. And Dalton McGinty was supposed to be the savior of all this. And they hated Dalton McGinty and they didn't like Kathleen Wynne and they hated Mike Harris. They didn't like Bill Davis. And now they don't like Doug Ford. It's impossible to be positioning yourself as the, the great savior of whatever the education conflict is when it doesn't matter who's in office, whoever takes that reign and becomes the person in power or the party in power inevitably ends up in a showdown with the education union. So all yeah. you're doing right now is you are trying to win votes that you will then probably give back later on when you fight with them. I also found it was interesting. Finally, somebody in the news conference with Laura Walton, the head of QP, finally asked, what about the parents? How are they supposed to plan for all of this? Because they don't know what the heck's going on. And we've got a clip of this. Laura Walton said, well, the parents have five days to plan. Even though we don't know what's going to happen in five days, you've got five days to make plan A or a plan B or maybe even a plan C. You just don't know which one you're going to use to the absolute last minute. I'm not sure when you ask uh, how concerned you are about the parents, and the, and the answer is parents have, have five days to plan, whether that's going to cut it with uh, Ontario families. Well, and again, like, Scott, it's just... It's just an ongoing thing, and we've just come It never ends. It never ends. As I say, go look it up. If people think I'm making this up, go back and look at the history of government, education union involvement back to the 1970s. Every government has battled with them. High school. I'm in high school, and we're at the C&E. Uh, and it's Labor Day, you and I told us this yesterday. And yeah, I'm phoning and my call. mother to see yep. if you know we're going to school the next day. My, I'm 60 years old. I dealt with this as a student. I've watched my kids deal with it as students. So it's like, what's the solution here? We can't keep doing this. Well, I can't keep negotiating. I can't keep you know negotiating a union contract that I'm paying for, that my kids are paying for, but I got nothing to do with, no say in. So yesterday I threw out one answer, which, as I say, I'm sure that I caused some union people's yeah. heads to explode. Yep. Nonetheless, here's another one that you could do, and you could do this with the uh, the health as well. Tell the people who are in charge of the unions, here is how much money we have. We're going to go, we're going to increase the education budget by 3%, let's say. 3% will be the amount for increases. That's all we've got. So unions, tell you what, you figure it out. You yeah. disperse the take 3%. A bit from the, take a bit into, from the teachers, give it to the EAs, whatever you yeah, want. Sure. You, it, we're, and we're giving you more. We will give you 3%. That has to though be decided because we have to have books. We have to have maintenance on buildings. We have to have new schools. We have to have this. So if you think that simply putting 3% more into the salaries of teachers will solve our problems, knock yourself out. That's up to you. But then when the schools break down or whatever else, well, don't come crying. This is, Scott, it's an endless thing. And about the parents, you know, we've just been through COVID. Kids were off school, off and on, off and on. They were in, uh, you know, online. They were doing this. They missed. We've had, in the last few years, we've had a ton of snow days. We've had, I think parents truly, and maybe this is unfortunate to the current union that's battling this. I think teachers are, uh, parents, pardon me, are truly at the end of their rope on this one. Truly at the end of their tether and have no tolerance for any more telling them their kids are going to be home. That's unfortunate to this union 
I think, but that's the, that's the reality. I don't think any parent wants to hear another, oh, well, your kids will be home. You better stay home with them and miss another day of work. That is it for us. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Frank wrote in to say, Scott, whatever happened to measuring the public sector's salary and wages parity against the consumer price index, where the true need to keep up with an honest increase becomes more withstanding.